I mean, we had two historians. Look, I've got an iPad. So we're, going to, we're moving forward into the uh, 21st century, except I've still got to work out how to use this iPad. <laughs> I'm just taking a photograph of the front row by, by mistake. <laughs> Here we go. Now, I, I know, um, some of you will have heard me speak on this down in Hobart. And if you have and you want to go home early, I won't be at all offended. But it's basically the same talk. Uh, and, and I want us to come into the, the letter of Paul to Titus. Uh, and so if you have Bibles and you can open them to Titus, it'd be handy to just be able to have them open in front of you. I'm only going to speak from one verse, so we're not going to do a lot of flicking through Titus, but uh, I will refer to other parts of Titus, because I think it's a very relevant book for us as we think about the future. Thirty years ago, I came to uh, Hobart from uh, London. Uh, Thirty years ago in January, and um, not long after we arrived in in, uh, in Hobart, uh, there was a, a state assembly, a little like the one we've had this week, up in Devonport. And I can remember going up uh, for the state assembly, and they had a moderator's dinner, like we had last night, and it was in a local restaurant. And uh, I can remember, uncharacteristically for me, I, I got the time wrong, and we were Ruth and myself, we were there early, and there was nobody there. There we, we could see through the windows, they were setting tables, and there was a, a, there was a waitress there. And I knocked on the window and I said, I, I, I'm not sure if I've got the right place. I, is there a function on here tonight? She said, yes, it's for the pedestrian church. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, she didn't know the word Presbyterian. Um, I hope she didn't know the meaning of the word pedestrian either. <laughs> or perhaps she did. <laughs> It raises the question, what future do we have as a denomination if people can't even spell our name? If you've been to hospital recently and they want, you, they want, to, want to know which church you belong to, they give up when you tell them that you're a pre, uh, Presbyterian. They put Christian down, something like that, because it's easier to spell. You know, what future do we have as a denomination? What does the word Presbyterian mean to the average Australian? What does it mean to us, those of us who were born and bred as Presbyterians brought up in, in the Presbyterian Church. That includes me. I want to say a couple of things about that. Uh, I hope I won't go on for too long, but I want to say a couple of things about that, and I want to do so by drawing your attention to these words uh, of Paul to Titus, his offsider, who he's left on the island of Crete. Literally, it says in verse 5, to put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town to put in order what was left unfinished. That's what I want to talk about. What is the unfinished task? We, we've, we've looked over 200 years and, and seen what a mess we've made of things at times. Uh, but what, what lies ahead of us? Because Jesus is coming back and we're going to have to give an account to him of our stewardship. So what is the unfinished task for us here in Tasmania? To put in order what was left unfinished, verse 5 of chapter 1, and appoint elders in every town. The word elder in Greek is presbyter, from which we get our word Presbyterian. So, so in a very real sense, this verse takes us back to our roots in the Bible. And it reminds us of who we are and what we're here for. Let me try and put it into context for you. Crete is a tiny little island in the Mediterranean. It, actually, it's not so, so tiny. It, it's the largest of the Greek islands. 
Homer, in his writings, talks about Crete of the Hundred Cities. That's not Homer Simpson, that's the Greek poet Homer. And some exaggerate, some poetic license there, perhaps some exaggeration, because in Paul's day and in Titus's day, there were probably more like 40 uh, townships on the island of Crete. And Paul's vision for Crete was to see every one of those townships, every one of those population centers, every one of those cities with a gospel church. I don't know how many centers of population there are in Tasmania. It wouldn't be difficult to find out. You just ask Google. And that's the unfinished task. To see every one of those municipalities in Tasmania with a healthy gospel witness. That's the job we've got to do in our generation. And I want to say this. It's not an impossible task. It might seem like that. We're a small denomination. We've got few churches. And it might seem like an impossible task, even in a small island like Tasmania, comparatively speaking. I want to say it's not an impossible task. Because they don't know it yet, but there are people in every one of those communities who have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. Chosen from all eternity to belong to Jesus. I, I like to call them, and I think it's important the way we talk about people who are who are out there, who God has chosen. They don't know that the case. I like to call them the not yet Christians. Not the, not the unbelievers, because there's an us-them thing in that, isn't there? They're, they're not yet Christians. And we are here for them, according to what Paul says in verse 1. He says we're here, do you see what he says? For the faith of God's elect. That is, in other words, to bring God's elect, those who God has chosen, to bring God's elect to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. Mark Twain, I think, said, uh, uh, the, the two great days in your life are the day you were born and the day we find out what you were born for. Well, we've been thinking about when we were born 200 years ago. It's a funny sort of birth. Uh, uh, but n now we're talking about what we're here for. We're here for the faith of God's elect. They don't know who they are. We don't know who they are. There are lots of them. We talk about the chosen few sometimes in Presbyterian uh, circles, don't we? Or people say that about us. Presbyterians have sometimes been called the chosen frozen. But the Bible tells us that they are more than can be numbered. I want us to hear that. In every city and town and community in Australia, in all walks of life, in every stratum of society, there are people who God has chosen before the foundation of the world to give to his son to be his people, and we're here for them, to bring them to faith in Christ by the preaching of the gospel and by our witness as, as church communities. Someone has said the church is the only society, I'm not sure if this is a, a good saying, but it, it makes my point anyway, the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. That's probably not entirely true, but that is how we're to think of ourselves. We're here for them for the faith of God's elect. That's why Paul left Titus and Crete, not to Presbyterianize them, but to evangelize them. He wants Cretans to become Christians. That's what we're here for. We're not living in Christendom. I think it's taking us a long time to realize that. We're living on a mission field. Tasmania is a mission field. We need to start thinking 
as a denomination like missionaries. That's why we need to plant churches and appoint presbyters in every city. Not to fly the denominational flag, but to see people converted and built up in the faith. I want to say that's our core business. Has it been our core business this week? Don't think so. It's not a criticism of anybody. It's just the way things happen in the Presbyterian Church nowadays. What should be our core business is often left off the agenda. This is the unfinished task. You know, when Jesus comes back, he's not going to say to us, and, uh, which abomination, sorry, which denomination do you belong to? He's not going to say that, is he? He's going to ask us about our stewardship with the gospel and how we've reached out to those who are in this world without hope and, and without God. That's the unfinished task. And, we need, and to take it seriously, we need to do three things, three points. First, uh, the first one is this. We, we need to, we'll need to keep the gospel central to who we are and what we do. We, we've heard just in these last, last two they great sessions, really helpful, historical and hysterical in parts, weren't they? Uh, but we heard, didn't we, how we lost the plot. We heard how it, 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 the, the, the gospel was sidelined and forgotten about in our history. Someone said that Presbyterian is, is a useful adjective, but it's an idolatrous noun. I, I like that. I, you see, one should not be a Presbyterian with a capital P. I am a Presbyterian by conviction. I came to Australia because of that, because of my convictions of, of, of the way church should be ordered. But we should, you know, Presbyterian is the adjective. It's not the noun. And we need to keep it that way. We're Christians who happen to organize ourselves in a Presbyterian way. Let's put the gospel at the center of who we are as a denomination. That's what we need to be known for. If, to, if we're to have a future in Australia, we need to recover our gospel-centeredness. Because in the 20th century, as we were hearing this morning, we, we almost lost it. Well, we did. But God, in his kindness, has brought us back to the gospel. We're a very different denomination now after the 1970s than we were before. I was ordained 50 years ago. I look so young. But I was ordained 50 years ago in Wales, in the Presbyterian Church of Wales. And uh, three years after my, oh, no, 18 months, I think, after my induction into my first parish, uh, there was a visit of the, the assembly of all the English-speaking churches. Two-thirds of the denomination in Wales were Welsh-speaking. And there was an English-speaking assembly. And uh, it met, happened, happened to meet in, in my, my new church, where I was the new pastor. And they, at that assembly, they passed a resolution inviting all the evangelicals to leave the denomination. And this was the denomination of Whitfield and Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland, the Calvinistic Methodist denomination. It's also known as the Presbyterian Church of Wales. In just a few hundred years, they'd lost the plot completely. And that, that denomination right now is disappearing off the scene. It was the main denomination in Wales. It's, it's, and what happens, of course, when denominations decline, when they lose the plot, uh, you know, they just start juggling plates and they make the parishes larger and larger. They have fewer ministers. And it just, it's just decline, decline, decline. And they merge presbyteries and assemblies. And there's nothing left. That's, that's what's happening to my, the denomination where I was ordained. It almost happened to us. 
We were a mixed, theologically mixed denomination. Liberalism had come into the colleges, as we were hearing uh, this morning. But God in his kindness, and this is such a rare thing, such an unusual thing to happen, but, but through the, you know, the uniting church thing, through, through the ecumenical merger that happened, God in his kindness really uh, has, has brought us back to the Bible and back to the confession of faith. Most of the liberals went into the uniting church. Now, this is a generalization, but it's, it's generally true. Most of the liberals in our denomination went into the uniting church. Not all, but most. And that left us base, basically with evangelicals who believed the Bible, and, and our denomination has gone through a huge sea change since the 1970s. And so what I'm saying is this, we mustn't take that for granted. This is a God thing. We mustn't take it for granted. And, and so I want to, this, this ought to be really uppermost in our prayers. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep the gospel center, central to what, who we are and what we do. Uh, Don Carson, uh, you know, we, we just heard this morning about Tim Keller going home to glory. Uh, Don Carson, his Parkinson's disease now, he doesn't travel anymore. These, 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 were great, these are great giants, aren't they? Uh, men that we look up to. Don Carson says this, if I've learned anything in, in, in 35 or 40 years of teaching, it is that students don't learn everything I teach them. What they learn is what I'm excited about, the kinds of things I emphasize again and again and again. That had better be the gospel, he says. If the gospel, even when you're orthodox, becomes something you primarily assume, but what you're excited about is something else, then you're only half a generation away from losing the gospel. Make sure, he says, that in your practice and excitement, what you talk about, what you think about, what you pray over, what you exude confidence over, joy over, what you're enthusiastic about is Jesus, the gospel, the cross. Now, I know gospel... When you talk about being gospel-centered, that's a bit of a cliche. It's, it can become a, a bit of a slogan. What I'm saying is this. It ought to be the vibe of our denomination. It ought to be in our DNA. It ought to be the engine that drives us, the doctrines of grace. I, I love the fact that uh, the latest church plant here in Tassie uh, is Grace Church in Hudson. I, I love the fact that uh, Grace is the headline and Presbyterians in the small print somewhere. I think that's right. That's how it should be. That's who we are. We're not the Haggis and Bagpipes Brigade. We're gospel people. We're evangelicals. Evangel means gospel. That's the, that's the nickname they gave to Luther's followers at the time of the Reformation. These gospel people, they're always talking about the gospel all the time. They're evangelicals. I'm not ashamed to be an evangelical. I think that's a great label to be to, to, to have put on me. I know words change their meaning and mean different things in different places now. In America, to be an evangelical means something entirely different to what I think. But, but it basically means gospel. Men and women who've been captivated by the grace of God. That's who we are. And that's our message. Grace. What is grace? It's the undeserved kindness of God to us in Christ. We deserve nothing but his angry punishment because of our sin and rebellion. But God hasn't dealt with us as our sin deserves. Instead, he's given us Jesus. In that baby in the manger, in that man upon the cross, 
the grace of God has appeared. That's what Paul says there in chapter 2, in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's how you change a convict colony. That's how you ch change an island like Crete with its pirate culture. That's how you ch change 21st century Australia. Not with moralism. Not with... Uh, protest movements and uh, pressure groups, by, but you change, you change a place by preaching grace. The grace of God teaches us to say no. It gives us, it gives us won't power as well as willpower. The grace of God. And, and that's why Paul left uh, Titus on Crete, to bring these people to faith in Jesus. And you know, he puts it like this, to the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, now Crete wasn't an easy place to, uh, for the gospel to take root. Um, but it says there in verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, that's not what it says in the holiday brochures, but that's what they said about themselves. Paul is quoting one of their own poets there. Today, of course, Crete is a much sought-after holiday destination. Everyone wants to holiday. On a, on a Greek island, uh, don't they? Well, who wouldn't want to be a church planter on the island of Crete? But, but think. Think about it. Think about a culture where newspapers can't be trusted. And politicians fiddle expenses. A harsh, brutal, selfish, racist culture where there's a fear of street crime. A culture where, where farm work and uh, building work is done by migrants because local people don't want the jobs. A, a culture where obesity is a massive problem, if you pardon the pun. That's first century Crete. And it's 21st century Australia too, isn't it? How do you reach a place like that? How do you turn Cretans into Christians? How do you get people who, by their own admission, and they boast about it, are compulsive liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, how do you get them to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way? Well, according to Paul in chapter 2 and verse 14, you tell them about Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I love that, eager to do what is good. Wouldn't it be lovely to see Tasmania littered with gospel communities full of people who are eager to do what is good. That would transform the place, don't you think? Mes McConnell is a church planter in Edinburgh on one of the, uh, one of the toughest housing estates in the United Kingdom. Uh, he's co-written a book entitled Church in Hard Places. He has a remarkable testimony. He suffered every imaginable kind of abuse as a child growing up. I won't go into the details. It's horrific which led to a life of crime and imprisonment, drug abuse. And then God gloriously met with him, and he was saved. He became a Christian. And this is, this is, how he, this is what he says. He says, Jesus Christ has not only freed me from my sin, he has not only reconciled me to God, but listen to this, he has changed my future and the future of my offspring for generations to come. He's broken the chains that bound me from birth. The cycle of pain and misery will stop with me. 
My children will never know what it is to be beaten at home. They will never know what it is to be abused physically and mentally by those who are meant to care for them. That's his childhood. That's his upbringing. God willing, they'll never know what it's like to go hungry. They'll never know all these things because, he says, of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in my life. Jesus Christ has broken the cycle. I can't protect them, he says, from the world around them. I can't protect them from their own sinful inclinations. But I can offer them an environment in which the gospel is real and relevant to their lives. I can offer them hope, opportunities and dreams. I can offer them things they could never have imagined if God had not reached down from heaven and given me life. That's what grace is. It's God reaching down from heaven into our lives. Not dealing with us as our sins deserve but coming to us in kindness and mercy, coming to us in Christ with arms open to forgive us and to change us. So let's, let's keep that central. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's make sure the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus is at the heart of who we are and what we're about. And then secondly, let's put church planting back on the agenda. I left you in Crete, Paul says to Titus, to put in order what was left unfinished. What was left unfin unfinished? Appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. Notice this, this is an apostolic directive. Paul is our apostle. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's not making a suggestion here. He's not saying, well, this could be a good thing to do. Why don't we try to do church planting on the island of Crete? See how that goes. No, he says, I, this is, I left you there to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He's issuing a directive. See, I, 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 I trying not to go off at tangents and trying to, I'm trying to keep to my script, but, but what for us is little more than a denominational distinctive. For Paul was a missional strategy. Not only in Crete, but everywhere he went, around the Mediterranean. We call it the, uh, the Pauline cycle. You can imagine him on a bike going around the, the Mediterranean. But we call it the Pauline cycle. Uh, everywhere he went, this is how he set out to win the world for Christ. This was his strategy. He would go to a place, preach the gospel, gather the converts, and then go back and appoint presbyters in every place. Indigenous, local leaders. Not import them from Bible college or from overseas, but grow their own leaders and, and put them in place in every city. Paul wants to scatter gospel churches like that throughout the Mediterranean. He did. I mean, some of you have even gone and visited the ruins of the, some of those places. He wants to see elder-led congregations in every town. Now, when I say that, I want to say that these pastoral epistles are pre-denominational. He wants to see communities that are led, well-led by gospel-hearted leaders in every town. The Free Church of Scotland, I'm very interested in the Free Church of Scotland. We heard about it this morning after the Great Disruption. Uh, was it 1843 or something like that? And uh, Thomas Chalmers and the leaders of that, that, that movement. The Free Church of Scotland used to be sort of, uh, there's a big culture change happening in the Free Church of Scotland. It used to be sort of confined to the highlands and islands of Scotland. But it, now it's moving into the cities there's been a huge change so that they, they were the, the, uh, psalm singing only, unaccompanied psalm singing. 
That was their position. Uh, it, that's changed. They still sing psalms, and they're very, they, they're very much in, in favor of singing psalms well, and they've, they've rewritten some of the music to go with the psalms, but they also have now introduced hymns. And they're, and they're planting churches. They're, they're, their strap line now is a, a, a healthy gospel church for every community in Scotland. And, and they've, 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 they've decided that by 20, 2030, they will have planted 30 new churches. And they're doing it. It's already happening. And they're not just going to the old, you know, hunting grounds of the, the highlands and islands. They're, they're doing it in Glasgow and Edinburgh and in the cities. I want to say to you, that's the unfinished task for us. That, that could be our vision. It's not a bad vision, is it, for us here in Tassie? A healthy gospel church for every community. See, when I talk about church planning, I'm not talking about weatherboard buildings or sandstone buildings. What is a church in the New Testament sense of the word? It's not a building. It's a network of relationships. You catch a glimpse of it there in chapter 2 of Titus. Just glance at chapter 2 and just look at all the people that are mentioned there in those early chapters, early verses, verses, verses in uh, chapter 2. There are mums and dads there, there are older men, younger men, older women, slaves, and they're interacting with each other. See, 20 years ago, when we were planting churches in Hobart, people used to say to me, because um, as you know, the Derwent Presbytery, is, it's, it's a church plant thing, really. Uh, when I came here, there was just the one presbytery of Tasmania. But 20 years ago, we, God did something, and, and we saw loads of conversions, and we started planting churches, cooperatively with the Reformed Church. And... Um, and so all our churches in Hobart, apart from St. John's, are, are church plants, basically. And then none of them have buildings, apart from Montrose. They're large congregations. Cornerstone's about 200 people in it. Crossroads about 150, something like that. They're, they're large congregations, but they don't have buildings. They're stuck in a uh, time slot, which is inconvenient for families, because they're sharing buildings with other churches. Uh, well, I don't want to go off on that tangent, but what I'm, what I'm trying to say is this. People used to say to me, where's your church? I used to say to them, and it used to really annoy them, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, people, sometimes they would just look at me strangely and walk away, but uh, sometimes they'd come back at me and say, well, how can we possibly find your church? If you don't know where it is, how can we find it? And I'd say, well, some of them are at work. Some of them are in the dentist. Some of them are dropping kids off at school. Uh, some of them are talking with their neighbors, having a cup of coffee. Do you, see what I'm, do, you, do you get the point? I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Church is 24-7. We don't go to church. We are church. Church is not a building or a meeting. It is a network of relationships. Are people eager to do good? That's how Paul describes the church here in Titus. That's what the gospel produced in Crete. You can see it there in... Two, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 14, a people eager to do good, zealous for good works. Paul's vision for Crete is to see the island littered with gospel communities like that. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things in the name of Jesus. Mums and dads, young and old, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, interacting with one another, vying with one another, egging one another on, eager to do good. That's what church should be like. Isn't that our vision for Australia? 
Isn't that our reason for being here? I hope it is. And of course, we can't do this alone. We're a small denomination. We've got few resources. But that's why gospel-centeredness is so important. When we started Vision 100 back in 2000, early, the early 2000s, it wasn't to set up a denomination. It was, to, it, was, it was meant to be a kind of catalyst to put church planting on the agenda of our denomination, so the Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, because it really wasn't there on the agenda. And we, we had to work out what, what, what's going to, what, what, what values do we need to have if this is going to get off the ground. We came up, I think, with four originally. Gospel clarity, gospel unity, gospel partnership, and gospel renewal. Gospel clarity. The gospel isn't some vague, sentimental thing. We need, the gospel can be spelled out. There are truths that are necessary to salvation, which are non-negotiable. And that, that, that allows us to have unity with those who hold to the same truths. And it means that we separate from those who don't. You see, that's what went wrong in, in what we were hearing this morning. I learned this a lot from Lloyd-Jones. He's really clear about this that evangelicals, gospel people, belong together, and they should cooperate together, and they should be visibly seen to be united. And they should separate from those who preach another gospel, even if it's in their own denomination. See, gospel clarity allows us to do that. It, 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 it is the basis of gospel unity. We come together on the foundation of, of these saving truths. But it also the, uh, allows gospel partnership. And, and things are changing in Tasmania. I mean, the Anglican Church, this, they're going through something of a renewal, I think. And, and uh, when we started Vision 100, there was just the Presbyterian Church and the Reformed Church, basically. We had just two denominations being involved. But, uh, then, but now there are, there are others who can subscribe to those values and, and, and believe the same truths that we believe. And they can come on board. You see, church planting doesn't need to be a turf war. When I say, in my mind's eye, I'm looking at Tasmania after my lifetime and thinking, a healthy gospel church in all of these communities, what will that look like? Well, it'll be a mix of different denominations together in those communities, living out the Christian life as a community, embedded in their communities, local churches. That's what I think. Church planting doesn't need to be a turf war. You in your small corner and I in mine. I'll do my thing. We'll do, uh, we do, uh, these days we're doing exactly the same thing and we're, we're doubling resources and wasting resources. It's, it's a bit like that back in the day as we were hearing this morning, tribal warfare between the English and the Scots, uh, wanting to secure a foothold in Australia. Thankfully, those days are, are long gone. So what I'm saying is this, let's, let's keep the main thing the main thing, let's put the gospel front and center of who we are, and let's put church planting back on the agenda. Not to preserve Presbyterianism, but to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus. That's why I left you on Crete, Titus, Paul says, to put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, I don't want to be cynical or offensive or go off on a tangent, but that doesn't sound necessarily like a good idea to us, does it? Elders? In every city? 
It's often in the Presbyterian Church, the elders are the problem. Present company accepted. <laughs> but historically, that's, that's the bottleneck in our denomination. Zealous young men going through, the, we've got three theological colleges now, zealous, keen young men being well-trained in our theological colleges, coming out into sometimes country parishes where the elders are the opposition. And they come up against it. And some of them just burn out and drop out of ministry altogether. You know the definition of a... Sometimes elders are seen as the pillar of the church. They think of themselves as the pillar of the church. You know what the definition of a pillar, don't you? It's, it obstructs vision and it holds things up. <laughs> we don't need any more elders like that. We mustn't make that mistake again. It almost destroyed our denomination. So often in the past, we've put the wrong people into leadership in our churches. Paul is very clear here in these verses about the kind of leaders we need, isn't he? In verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1, he, he, he describes the kind of leaders. Where, where do we find leaders? Well, look, in, look around, he says. Look into, the, look into their homes, look into their hearts, and look into their heads. Because we need leaders who've got the gospel in their heads and in their hearts and in their homes. That's basically what verses 6 to 9 is saying. That's Paul's vision for Crete. Healthy churches led by healthy, gospel-hearted leaders. See, as I say, these pastoral epistles, they're pre-denominational. So they're not telling us how to set up a denomination. The emphasis here is on character. It's not on the code book, it's on character. And the kind of character that he describes in verses 6 to 9, it's just ordinary, common garden, uh, Christian character. You, you mustn't see those verses as some sort of checklist that makes it, puts eldership on a higher level, and I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly be one of those. <laughs> no, if you're not one of those, you're not a Christian. <laughs> he says, not given to drunkenness, <laughs> not violent. In, in the Crete culture, where they prided themselves on their uh, brutality and in this pirate culture situation. He said, no, you, you, you've got to be different. You, you see, the point is this. Healthy churches need healthy leaders. And, and, and these are missional documents, not manuals of church order. Paul's concern here is not to Presbyterianize, but to evangelize. And so at the end of the chapter, he warns about toxic legalistic leaders who are destroying whole households and leading people astray. And he says to Titus here in, in verse 5, literally in the Greek, straighten it out. I left you there to straighten things out. The, at the heart of the, the Greek word is the word orthos, from which we get words like orthodoxy, correct doctrine, or orthodontist, who straightens out crooked teeth, or um, orthopedic, the straightening out of crooked limbs, so if bones are straightened out, they can be strong again. That's what's needed, Titus. Toxic leaders have crept into the, and they're destroying churches. So I've left you there to straighten things out and appoint godly men, godly leaders, in every city there on the island of Crete. There were crooked, corrupt leaders there, unorthodox, malfunctioning churches, and Titus has got to deal with that because healthy churches need healthy leaders. And if you want to know how to straighten out a church spiritually, then you've got to put the right leaders in place. And that's a work in progress for us. We've made a lot of progress, I think. 
since uh, the 1977 thing. John Calvin said, a pastor needs two voices, one to gather the sheep and one to drive away the wolves. We need leaders like that, don't we? Men who've grasped the gospel for themselves and they're excited about it. That's what they go on about it all the time. Men who are able to guard the gospel from false teachers. They know their doctrine. They know their confession of faith. And, and, and men who are, who are able to give the gospel away. That's the task, Titus. Find leaders like that and you'll transform the place. Someone has said any church or, or movement of churches will only survive or expand in proportion to its ability to produce successive generations of effective leaders. Now, that's, that's, that takes time. But that's what Paul's talking about. And that's what we've got to give ourselves to in the time that we've got left here on earth, in our future. Leonard Ravenhill, I love this story. Leonard Ravenhill tells, a, tells about a group of tourists visiting a, a picturesque village somewhere up in the Balkans. And uh, they, as they're being shown around, they come across a, a toothless old peasant who is sitting behind a fence. And in a rather patronizing way, one of them says to, uh, to him, were any great men born in this village? Nope, he said, only babies. <laughs> See, growth takes time. If we're going to evangelize Australia, if we're going to multiply churches here in Tasmania, and that's the unfinished task, we're going to need to raise a new generation of gospel-hearted, gospel-minded leaders. We're going to have to do that in our church, we've got to have our eye on people in Sunday school. We've got to be praying that God would raise up from our Sunday schools future evangelists and church planters. Our 19th century forefathers were church planters. They had to be. There weren't, lo there weren't lots of established parishes to go to, but just a bit of bush in some places. But, but more to the point, towns and cities were springing up everywhere now without any gospel work. We talk nowadays sometimes about church planting as if it was something new and exotic and even un-Presbyterian. It's often said that our structures work against it. And yet even a cursory glance of our early history in the Presbyterian Church in Australia shows that pioneering church planting was part of our heritage. Our forefathers were innovators. They were risk-takers. Men came from Scotland with no idea of what lay ahead of them. The difficulties of climate and traveling great distances must have been formidable. They went to towns with no established church, perhaps a handful of co contacts, and they set to work. Not all their risks paid off. Sometimes a church planter would labor in a town for years with no result and then move to another town and see great fruit. And what I'm saying, my friends, we need, we, need, we need to recapture that pioneering spirit. We're on a mission field. You're missionaries. You're either missionaries or you're the mission field. We've got to start thinking like that. We've got to start taking risks. We've got to start sending off some people from our congregation to a different part of Tasmania to live. We've got to be willing to do that. To take risks and to make sacrifices. Not to fly the denominational flag, but to, to bring Cretans to Christ. So let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's put the gospel front and center who we are, and then very quickly, let's, 
and, and let's put the church planning back on the agenda, not as an option, but as a necessity. And then lastly, very quickly, let's make sure we live it out before the watching world. That's the burden of this letter. If you read through Titus, only three chapters. You might want to do that sometime. Three short chapters. But the burden of the letter, according to verse 10 of chapter 2, is that we are to, to adorn the gospel by the way we live. We're to relate to one another so that in every way we'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Winston Churchill once said that he related to church, he didn't go to church, but he related to church rather like a, a flying buttress. He supported it from the outside. Back in those days, the Church of England was often referred to as the Conservative Party at prayer. What about us? What about the PCA, Presbyterian Church of Australia? Who are we? What are we here for? How do people view us? Times have changed. 200 years ago, we came with a sense of entitlement as a, a kind of an established church, but those days are long gone. We're no longer part of the establishment, are we? People today in Australia no longer support the church even from the outside. Increasingly, I mean, when I first came to Hobart, uh, I had loads of, uh, of funerals to take of people who had a Scottish heritage. That's no longer the case. People don't support the church even from the outside. Increasingly, we're viewed by the public nowadays with suspicion, if not hostility. We've become the bad guys. To come back to that girl in Devonport, perhaps she knew more than we realize. Pedestrian has two meanings, doesn't it? As an adjective, it can mean ordinary, dull, boring, just plodding along, lacking in vitality and imagination. Is that who we are? Is that how others perceive us? Nowadays, they don't have journalists coming to report on our meetings. That's probably a great mercy. <laughs> what would they say? What would they say? Or, it, 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 you know, as an adjective, that's what it means, but it's also a noun, isn't it? Pedestrian. It means someone who walks a pedestrian. Isn't that what we're called to? To walk as he walked. To make the teaching about God our Savior attractive by the way we live together in our communities. Let's aspire to that, shall we? To walk as he walked. To be Presbyterian pedestrians, not pedestrian Presbyterians. <laughs> to, to be known not so much for our system of government, helpful as that is, as by our manner of living so that people will take note of us. They will take note of us and know that we have been with Jesus. There's no other explanation for that community there in wherever it is. These people come together and they're living in a way that's so different. They're salt and light. There's no other explanation. They must have been with Jesus. That's where these people come from. Let's pray. Come from the four winds, O breath of God, and breathe upon the dry bones of those who say that they're yours. Give repentance and zeal, life and urgency to the people of God, that we may cease to seek excuses for our disobedience and become again your servant people, used by you for the saving of the world, taking the good news of Jesus to the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen.